you and me this week the other bits of the gang are in la is that right where uh rail sass conference is yeah. going on yep that's yeah. right jealous of being in la although i was just there last month but yeah i'd go back yeah right it's got good weather there yeah jason and andrew were conferencing it up and i was like either i was going to record a solo episode just because there's no rules you're lawless when you're doing a, right. a solo podcast episode and andrew threatened one in the past on twitter and we all know how unhinged that could have become so that's right. why you're here to keep me from going unhinged well <laughs> although it would have been better if you would have beat him to that you know you would have been the first one to do the solo that probably would have really got under his skin yeah it definitely would have triggered him he just starts recording episodes and Putting them in our feed without us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> be great. What have you been working on? Today, I kind of took a detour from what I've been doing most of the week, which was recording screencasts, which I'll come back to that. But today I was working on that issue that we have on pay that we want to add for the sending out the trial ending subscription emails. I started picking that up again. And it's like, Never as easy as you think it would be, right? It's just like, oh yeah, grab this event, send out an email. But that's not really the case because we have the option for those things to be configurable, right? So then like, I have to make sure to go in and add that as an option so that users of pay can go in and configure and say, hey, I don't want to send any emails there and so forth and so forth. So it's always just a lot of steps. And then you're just kind of going through like, okay, what do I want to test? Okay, let me... I should probably test to make sure that the webhook event, like that handles properly and like enqueues some email. And then yeah, I also yeah. need to like test my mailers. But then we also need to send out different emails if it's like, hey, your trial is going to end in the next three days, which is I believe when that event gets fired, if it's once it's three days out from ending. But then if you like end it immediately, we want to send a different one of like, hey, your trial has ended. It's just a lot of yep. pieces to keep. Are yep. those two different webhooks or is it the same webhook with different details? Same webhook. Yeah, same webhook. Gotcha. Well, that makes it trickier because it's the same webhook and you then have to decide like the webhook sends either the same email with different content or do you write two different mailers and just route it accordingly instead? What yeah, did you end up doing for that? My current thought is to when we're in the webhook, like the call method for the webhook, I'll just go ahead and create the mailer with all the details, right? And then I can check and like, is the end of that, the trial ending, is that before the current time? Is it after the current time? And then from there, I can say, okay, now let's call the trial will end mailer. Let's go mm -hmm. to that action. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, mm -hmm. let's just do the trial ended mailer. So I'm routing the two different mailers that way. I think that'll be better in the long run, but always open for suggestions. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like I would do it that way, at least off the top of my head, that's the approach I would take because you would then have two mailers that you could test independently and you could like preview them separately. You don't have to like set a bunch of different state to test those out. Like it is right. two separate things. You make two different calls and then they're kind of hard coded to what they do, which is nice. So that's probably what I would do too, for that same reason. 
the other question that it came to mind there was, so I assume that when they send you the trial will end in three days or whatever. Plus, I know some of those things can be configurable. So it could be like your trial ends in seven days or whatever. It may just be a hard coded like three days, but for their Dunning emails, it was like three attempts by default for like a failed mm-hmm. payment. And I know you could change mm-hmm. that number or whatever. Like if they don't give you that in the webhook or something, then you just have to write your email more generically and say like, your trial is ending soon instead of your trial ends in right. three days or whatever. Right. That's a really <laughs> good point. Yeah. See, I, I haven't even thought that far through it right now. I'm just kind of in the phase of, okay, let me get the flow down and see yep. like what that looks like. And then I'll run into those rough edges in the future. <laughs> yeah. That's the fun where you realize, oh, this sounds like a really easy feature, but now all these little nuances make a big difference in how we end up building that or whatever. That's a good one to work on. And related to that one is like those Dunning emails that I was telling you about just a minute ago, like those I would like to have as a feature of pay right now, everything for GoRails goes through ProfitWell and they do like those failed payment emails, which is fine, but they don't understand that companies have multiple products sometimes. So Mm -hmm. all of those failed payment emails come from Chris at GoRails, but it's like, hey, your 249 payment failed. It's actually for Jumpstart, but it looks like it's got the GoRails logo in there and stuff. So it doesn't look like it came from Jumpstart. And it would be nice to have them all using that failed payment email system straight from pay because then we can control like the template and everything else and just have the right details there because that's how it should be. Yeah, I guess that's part of a bigger conversation of getting GoRails onto Jumpstart right in the future. A lot of that stuff for anybody that doesn't know, like GoRails, I started way before pay existed. And like I've started that in like 2011 or something. So like the Stripe API has changed a lot in 11 years, which is crazy to say. But it's doable to upgrade it to pay. But like, is it worth the effort? Maybe, maybe not. And we can actually just take a lot of the code straight from pay and then like put it right directly into GoRails and it gets us close enough. And we just copy paste the mailers over and the webhook processing code and voila, you know, we'd have the equivalent there and we'd be able to drop that third party service from sending those emails. And like eventually then you can reorganize stuff and make it work with pay if you wanted to like move the whole code base in there. But that's adding the models and moving stuff around and lots of like nuances to all that. So it's a not a simple migration, but it's doable for sure. But it's like, you just got to be careful when there's payments and it goes into production. And if you make mistakes, you need to be right there to fix them right away because that's important. Yeah. So we're not going to do that one today then on a Friday or yeah, today or on a Friday. Yeah. We'll just push that one live shortly. (laughs) Somebody on Twitter I saw was like, if you do CICD, then if you allow people to merge PRs on a Friday, then technically you're deploying on Fridays too. And I was like, oh yeah, but they're a little yeah. safer, I guess, because they already went through CI hopefully, but hopefully. you never know. Yeah, <laughs> right. You really don't ever know. Yeah. What else? I was working on pay this week too. Three days ago, adding sync for payment intent and setup intents. That's right. So uh, yes, I remember. 
And we found this like very obscure bug that I had to go to Stripe support for that I was telling you about. Basically, when we create a subscription, it wouldn't ever save the payment method to the Stripe customer. And it was because we had, from the early days of the SCA changes, had just always created subscriptions with off-session is true, but I think internally in Stripe that's changed a bit. So if you have that flag, then it basically tells the payment method it can never be attached to a customer or whatever for safety mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have like approved yeah. it through SEA, which makes sense. Right. So we just changed that, which is good. That fixes that bug. And then, yeah, I think the other ones were really just little things like that. Nothing too exciting. I think the next thing is to just pull in like some of the pause behavior updates and a guy, Michael Vosseller, pardon me if I butchered your name. He made a PR to add current period start and end to subscriptions, which would be nice. So I want to look into that a little bit more. It does add the columns to the database, which are going to be kind of tough because it's one of those situations where like Braintree doesn't necessarily give that or paddle or whatever. So how do we do we use those? And if we don't have webhooks constantly updating those values, then how do we know when to update those values? We're not going to run a cron job or something. And we could, I guess, but it's a tough feature that you can build something just for Stripe and then assume that, hey, if you got Braintree, you just can't use that feature or something. It's kind of Mm -hmm. painful to deal with, but joys of building abstractions on APIs. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing today. And the rest of the week, I've been working on screencasts, like I mentioned before, which has been fun. I started a little series of like your first Ruby gem. And it's like, the beginner of the beginner kind of series of making a Ruby gem. We don't use the bundle gem commands, a scaffold that, out gem or anything like that. That's cool because I've never done that. I've always done bundle gem or like yeah. Rails plugin new. So right. that'll be even new for me to like just go through completely from scratch, which is neat. Yeah, it's interesting because like depending on how big your actual like gem code is, like in the video, we just add a little method to the built-in like Ruby array class. But like, if it's like a one line method, you can build the whole gem in about eight to 12 lines of code split across like two files, which is like insane. Wow. So you have to create the gem spec from scratch and then. Yep. Yep. So you make like just your main project directory and then you make dot gem spec file named after whatever your gem is. We make a lib directory and then inside that lib directory, the root of there, we make a .rb file named after the gem as well. So we just write our code in there, fill out the gem spec. When the gem spec, I think it's only five required attributes that you have to define Mm. on the gem specification object. And then there's a bunch of more that are like recommended. And then there's a whole section of optional attributes as well. But the bare minimum is five. And the whole goal here was just to try and like, let's do the minimal thing possible so that we don't have a bunch of stuff in our way and we can really understand how this all hooks together and works. That's really cool. Building something completely from scratch like that is a good way to understand when I ran that command and it generated all this crap. Now I know why it's all there and Every little line being required is like, okay, now you have to understand why we need this and why we need that and why we need whatever. I think that's a really good way to learn how to build a gem or build anything, really. You're not copy pasting from Stack Overflow or whatever. Right. And 
after making those videos, so like the first one is just pretty much what I told you, making that little bit of structure and getting the gem built and released on Ruby Gems where you can like kind of pull it in and play with it or send it to your friends and stuff. The second video, we set up a Git repository, set up testing, like a very simple testing setup. We don't even use break to run the test. There's no dependencies in this thing whatsoever. It's all just straight Ruby code. So we set up a testing directory in the project. Once we get that going, then like I set up like a very basic GitHub action so that we can run our tests every time we push or open a PR. That really it's just like all the minimal pieces you need to get in place to start working on projects of your own. That was like the overall goal here. So are you even using mini tests or anything? Yeah, we are using mini tests. Is but, that... You know, that ships with standard lib, so we just okay. put that in. Yeah, that's sweet. So it's like the most minimal thing you could build. That's yeah, cool. Exa- exactly. Yeah. I didn't want there to be a whole lot of stuff in the way of understanding just what a gym is. How do we build one? What are the core pieces here? Yeah. Yeah, that is awesome. And I was thinking too, it'd be a lot of configuration code, but like you could do the same thing for a Rails app and like write the config.ru and config.application.rb and go through mm-hmm. the entire process and say like, this is exactly which file is being required. So let's go add that file and all the steps it does and then go back to where we were and then load the environments and whatever. Like that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And I think like a good bridge between where we're at in the video series and what you were just talking about is if you go look at Rails itself, like the Rails Rails repo on GitHub, if you go look at the gem spec in there, I'm pretty sure when you write in your gem spec file, there's like a spec or an S dot files attribute you like push yes. things onto. I'm pretty sure I'm not looking right now, but you, I think you are. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think it's only the README and the license that requires, right? In the files. Right? Correct. So like, yeah. Rails, it is. Even, it's not even doing anything. Yeah, the Rails gem is completely empty. Yeah, there are no amazing. There are no executables, I don't think, or anything defined here. It just is yeah, I think dependencies like for at, everything. Yeah, I think it all starts kind of at rail ties. But so what yep. I was getting at is like from there, a good middle ground. I did this late the other night, like I was telling you about, like you can just go make a main project and then inside of there at the like root level, you can make a few other directories just like Rails does. So like what I mean by your first top level directory in the Rails world is Rails. The one I made on my own was called Handrails. And then inside of there, I just uh, made two directories and each of those directories were like my own fake active support and active record gems. And like literally mm-hmm. you can just build mm-hmm. those gems inside those folders. So they're independent, much like active support and active record are. And then your main gem just uses those. You just add them as dependencies. So like when you go to, in my case, go like gym install handrails, it just pulls those in and that's it. So like that's at a very micro level, that's rails. It's just compounded from there with just a whole bunch of other gems inside of it. So it's right. cool to just figure that out on your own too. So I'd like to maybe see in the future, maybe like we can make that next middle step from where I am now in that series to what I just told you. And then eventually mm-hmm. like somebody could go do like Noah Gibbs has his rebuilding rails book. That's more like we like what you were talking about when we got on this topic. Yeah, he does do a lot of that kind of thing. What's really fun is like once you start to realize like this in my gem spec means it's going to require this file, then you can like literally step through 
every single thing that happens until you get into things like this stuff magically gets loaded because of site work and auto loading mm-hmm. and whatever, or like mm-hmm. magic that happens or whatever. But like for the basics, it's like if you go into the rail ties folder in the rails repo and you click on the gem spec, you will see the files and it loads changelog, readme, MIT license, and then it loads everything in the executable directory and then everything in the lib directory. And the require path is set to lib. So it's going to basically look at and, and say require lib slash rails at .rb and that's where it's going to start. And then you have like the bin directory and executables. So it looks at that executable directory and that's where your bin slash rails or uh, exe slash rails. And when you run rails in your command line, that's where it is. And that's mm-hmm. the code that runs. And it doesn't feel magical anymore because you know exactly where to find these things now and like you can go debug stuff and whatever it's cool because there's really at the end of the day no magic nothing at all at that point and you'll even see that the bin test file here is just like hey let's go set a root path and then require relative from there and you just navigate to the correct folder and voila you're off to the races I mean, even making those videos, I learned a lot from making those. And then like going dive in, like I was saying, like poking around through the Rails source code. I'm like, very much just what you said. I'm like, it's not obscure to me anymore. I can see exactly how this all plays together. So it's really cool. So I think anybody that like, especially beginners, if they go and watch those two videos when they come out and then start poking around at some other gems that are out there, I think my hope is that they will feel more confident in navigating around through that code. Yeah, I would say that's the thing that probably accelerates developers and like in their careers the fastest. And like, thank goodness we're in Ruby, right? Because all of the source code is available like on our system. It's not right, compiled right. and well, some of it will be in library and in C code somewhere. And like, that's going to be harder to debug. But there are the majority of things where you can just say, hey, there was an error. Let's go dig up the sidekick internals and see why it broke there. And it's like probably our fault. And you just learn it and fix it. Whereas if you were using C Sharp or .NET or something and it crashes in a DLL inside of Windows somewhere, like, good luck. That's all like hidden proprietary, like compiled Mm -hmm. code or whatever. And you can't just dig into it and understand why it broke. So we're really lucky to be able to do that. And then my bundle open over there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or like you can, if you know how to interpret the assembly that it compiled down to or whatever, but like not fun. It's really nice that we have that tool. And then I think that's one of the things that I've noticed that people who learn the fastest end up just, okay, it broke here. Let's go see what it was trying to do. Cause I know what I wanted it to do, but it may not have expected what I gave it. So you read it and you understand Yeah, You don't have to understand a lot, actually. You just really understand step-by-step what the heck it was doing at the time. And you may not know conceptually any of the rest of what's happening, but there's one variable came in nil and it wasn't supposed to be. So why was it nil? And we worked backwards and we're like, oh, I made a typo in my argument or something. And right, you, right. Know, blah, blah, yeah, you yeah. fixed it. I think I've said this many places, but that's been one of the biggest takeaways I've had since joining up with you at GoRails here is diving into the source and reading that more and like typically going there versus documentation. Yeah, we don't read 
a lot of docs when we're debugging stuff, do we? No, no, we don't. Most of the time in the actual source code, they have documentation in there. And sometimes it's better than the documentation yeah. that's like out there. You know what I mean? It's mostly our doc kind of style stuff and it's code comments written in line, but there's a lot of helpful stuff within the source code comment wise, you know, not just the source code itself. I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Honey Badger. They are not only my favorite error and uptime monitoring service, but they've also added several awesome new features. One of those being the public status pages. So it makes perfect sense that your error and uptime monitoring tool can have a public status page for you to communicate any downtime outages with your customers. So whether US East 1 is down or you forgot to add a configuration file, Honey Badger is there for you to help communicate any downtime or outages with your customers. Plus, they've also added SSL certificate monitoring. So like many of us use these days, Let's Encrypt certificates expire every 90 days. And if for some reason you're a week away from expiring an SSL certificate, they can let you know ahead of time so that you can take care of it without any outages for your customers. Plus, managing the errors and things inside of Honey Badger has gotten even easier with Honey Badger Actions which you can use to automatically assign errors to yourself or another team member, add tags to different error classes and more. And they also have batch actions, which you can use on the search results to help manage your backlog of work to do. So Honey Badger is the place to check out for error and uptime monitoring, and it's only getting better. So check them out at honeybadger.io. Yeah, that reminds me of the episode's not out right now as of recording, but it will be soon. The Omnioth internals that mm, that I was poking mm-hmm. around with for, what was, I don't even remember why we were doing that. Oh, it was someone changed their GitHub username after uh, doing GitHub right. OAuth. That's right. Yeah. And like everything blows up because the API requests need the username. So GitHub has user IDs, which are like your typical integer that increments, but like you never see them. So through the API, you're using the user's username. And like on the Rails hackathon, as an example, you connect your GitHub account and we go and invite you as a user to your repository. Well, if your username changed since you logged in to the Rails hackathon site and we make that API request with the old username, just 404s and you're like, what in the heck is happening? Mm-hmm. So... What we went down the rabbit hole of, and it turned out amazing, like we got a good solution on it. But basically, when you go through Omnioth, that's always user triggered. So they had to click on the button, start Omnioth on their system because they're logged in on GitHub. And then it will give us this auth hash back. And my inclination was like, we want ideally to use that same process. Because if Omnioth can access the API and the access token and collect all of that and set up this big hash with all this special formatting. I want to basically update that anytime. And we could use the API directly and try and pull those things and then build our own thing to recreate what Omnioth is doing. But when we were talking about it, it was like, well, theoretically, Omnioth is doing this inside of the Omnioth GitHub gem. So like, Is it possible that we could just use the internals of the Omnioth gem there to recreate that and just manually go through the process, skip the OAuth thing, use the access token we currently have, and we just use like the very last half of the OAuth process 
and we figured right. it out. Like we got a way to create the strategy and set it up with the client secret and ID. And normally those are actually rack applications. If people didn't know that, that's why actually when you read the instructions for OmniAuth, it says like, if you're using this with rack, you say use OmniAuth GitHub, OmniAuth strategies GitHub, and you give it the parameters and it's like, we'll put mm-hmm. it in your rack middleware, voila. But then if you read the Rails instructions, it's like Rails middlewares add, and it adds it as a rack middleware through Rails in that case. So really all this OmniAuth stuff is happening before it gets to Rails for the most part. And then it gives you that stuff in Rails in the callbacks controller. And so, yeah, we basically went through the internals of OmniAuth GitHub, OAuth, OmniAuth, OAuth 2, and the OAuth 2 gem. And read through all of those and figured out can instantiate the OmniAuth strategies GitHub, pass in the client ID and secret, create an OAuth2 token with our access token that's currently in the database. We can then refresh that if needed. And then we can pass that into the strategy and then call the auth hash code, which knows how to use the OAuth2 gem to use that token to make requests to the API to then recreate the auth hash. And then we just can update it on our own time anytime we want and save all of those results. Because if the user changed their username, they might change their name, they might change their avatar, they might change a bunch of other attributes. If you're using any of the metadata URLs that GitHub gives you or other OmniAuth processes would give you, like there's other metadata that you would probably want to have updated as well. So we didn't want to just update the username because probably a lot of the other things we also needed to update too. So this gave us right. like a three line little code thing, yeah. which is like instantiate GitHub OmniAuth strategy, assign the access token, and then update the current auth hash with the new one. It was amazing. Like, cause I think we did like kind of look at the docs a little bit and then some other things, but then there was yep. just like that moment where the light bulb went off. It's like, we have this nail we want to hammer, right? Like we have a hammer already. It's in the OmniAuth toolbox. It's, it's there. Yeah. OmniAuth is using yeah. the tool. Like, let's just go get it out the toolbox and then hit the nail yeah. with it. You know, like that was what was really interesting too. Cause, you know, a lot of people will put private and protected and try to make things inaccessible if they're meant to be internal. But like OmniAuth didn't do that, thankfully, because that meant that we didn't have to like do send and asking for private methods to be called. We're not like digging into the right. internals. These are actually the public interface of OmniAuth. So you're allowed to go do all these things. And what's cool is normally that's 100% internal to OmniAuth and you never even touch any of these things, but it's all available to you. It's fascinating. They got their toolbox and they've got it organized and they use it themselves, but they just don't tell you, here, you can use the same toolbox. Everything that we use is available to you. And that was like one of the best moments of my week because it was like, you know what? That solution is going to be solid because you did something actually that would have been really messy otherwise. And you did it in very few lines of code and you use the exact same process that OmniAuth does. And of course, if OmniAuth changes the process in version three or something, then yeah, we may have to update some things, but chances are we won't. And it will Mm. just be this magical solution that just works from now until whenever, which is awesome. So yeah, that was really cool. 
I was very pleased with that one. So that screencast will be out at some point and it's definitely worth a watch. There's a lot that kind of happened in there. So I did my best to explain the whole thing, but it's kind of a lot going on and I didn't want to dig too deep into the internals of everything that I read in side of Omnioth because Mm -hmm. that would have been a four hour screencast and I didn't want to subject (laughs) you to that, but all of the important pieces are all there and yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I'm excited to go back and watch that one. I was there when we did it, but it'll be cool to go back and watch and not be in that like the mental space of like trying to think through it at the time of finding yeah. it. So yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's something interesting that I know that I worked on it like the day before and then was just like, it's probably possible, but I don't know what I'm looking at and I don't know where I'm going. And then I like slept on it and I was still noodling on that problem the next morning. Mm-hmm. And so I'm poking at it and I'm like, let's just hop in the rails console and see if I can access this and that. And whatever. And then I'm like, Oh snap, I can do all that. This toolbox is all right here. Yeah. That's great. That stuff is really fun. It really is like completely undocumented stuff, but it's all of these tools are available to you. And that I think is the interesting point here. Bring it full circle right here. Right. Yeah. 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 Like the whole reason that this is important is because if you didn't actually read the source code and you're just looking at the docs, this would appear completely impossible and you would have to reinvent the wheel and you'd be forced to do that. And that sucks. That was the path I started down originally. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this. Why do I have to recreate Omnioth? This sucks. Right, right. And that's what got me going down that path. And I was like, wait a minute, why do I have to recreate Omnioth? And you don't. Question first, kids. Yeah. And I just think that lesson is like super important. Just don't worry about the docs so much. The actual code that's there and available to you is going to help you solve the problems better. And a lot of times you realize like sometimes the docs don't even match up to the possibilities that the code actually allows for. And there's like a lot of extra hidden things that they didn't document because they don't really want to it maybe it's too complicated or whatever the case is. It's like they just don't mm-hmm. want to deal with writing docs for that or something and like they maybe didn't want to for this or whatever but you could totally do it sure but yeah maybe that was their line of thought right let's not write docs for because anybody who really needs to use this probably will jump into the source code and find it yeah and like they talk about all these components and things in their wiki or whatever but they're like always kind of in context of person just went through the process, click the buttons, and then here is what you can access now. But it's mm-hmm. never like, mm-hmm. uh, did you know you could recreate this later on at any time? They never talk about that because right. what, 1% of people might need that or whatever. And so it doesn't make sense or whatever, or never even registers maybe for some of those thoughts when you're writing docs, but it was pretty cool. And it's probably something that you could look in their test suite and actually see them doing exactly this to create. Oh uh, yeah, you're probably you know? right. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're <laughs> probably right about that. That's another funny part that if you actually look at the tests for a lot of things, you will be surprised that you can go like do a lot of interesting things like that because they have to build those same flexible tooling things. For example, like all of the Stripe Ruby objects are available to create from a hash. So kind of like an open struct, you can say Stripe customer 
construct from and give it a hash of any key. Oh, uh, right, right. Yep. And we use that and we just say like, hey, we'll dump a customer JSON to a file. Then we can parse the JSON and then give that to construct from and voila, we have a Stripe customer fixture that we can put in a file, we can put in YAML, we can do whatever the hell we want with it. And just as long as we can get it into a Ruby hash, we can go make a real Stripe customer, even though if it's not technically a real one on their API, it's real to us in our like Ruby code mm-hmm. and our tests. So that's where the mechanism we use to like test webhooks. Just pulling this full circle again, going all the way back to Yeah, which webhooks. I was actually I was about to say, which <laughs> I was actually dealing with earlier. Yeah. yeah. I had to go make like a stripe fixture JSON object to use in the testing the webhooks there. So yeah, we're just Boom. coming full circle all day, all day today. <laughs> That's good. What else you been working on? Anything else? That's been the biggest things this week. Again, and last week too, knocking out some screencasts. That's been the big focus lately as we prepare for uh, Baby Jackson's arrival here. Yeah, Baby Go Rails. Yeah, for anybody that doesn't know, I've, we're expecting about three weeks from now, maybe a little under three weeks. We're under three weeks now, yeah. Yeah, I think so. So... Yeah, it's going to be a fun time. So you might hear screaming babies on the podcast or screencast or something, but he's already got his little baby go rails outfit. And yeah, Jason, does he? Yeah, he's got that one. He's got another little ditty too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's another one with that Jason got us made for him that has a DHH on it. So <laughs> it is so good. And then Brooke just got him the meat church. Barbecue, like barbecue ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I've seen you all the one I got. Similar to what Jason did, except it's the Go Rails and Sons. Brooke got me that all these briskets are my son's t-shirt that we saw at a place in Texas. I think Goldie's Barbecue. Yep. So, yeah, lots to get done before then. So, I will be very sleepless, I think. But between getting screencast done and just kind of sorting out any last bugs and stuff in Hatchbox, a lot is going on. Hatchbox has gotten a lot of good things happening, like little tiny things that are like you don't expect, but like you write the code for it and then you may not fully test it. We have processes. And if you add a process, we create a process on your server. And if you delete it, we delete it. But if you like change the name of it, I forgot that the files have the name in the process name on the server and instead of like the ID that never changes. So if that name changes, then like the process name mm-hmm. and the files on the server need to change as well. So you test it and you're like, add sidekick. Great. It's running. Delete sidekick. Great. It's done. You edit another setting, probably don't change the name of it. And then you realize like, oh, should have caught that one. And Mm -hmm. so just little tiny little bugs here and there and stuff, but that's been good. I think our metered billing setup is working properly. We haven't over-calculated time usage or anything like that so far from what it appears, which is good. Because that one was tough. We had like, the the numbers started to all like blend together for a minute there. Like when we were like trying to figure out the right form there. So for anybody that doesn't know, like our old version of Hatchbox Classic just had simple billing tiers and you would pay for one tier and you could have up to X number of servers, which is fine, but you'd like pay extra if you didn't use all the servers or maybe you need one for 
a day or two and then you want to shut it down and you got to upgrade a tier and then downgrade later and it was just like not smooth for customers so the new version is just usage based which sounds simple we start your server we start account of you know that is when the server was created and we want to then count until it's destroyed but you have to break that up so if you run a server for five years or something and you only charge when they shut down the server you would not charge them until five years later and then have a giant bill for that all at once right right so you've got to do regular reporting but if you do that every day or whatever it is then you have other considerations to take into effect you might also start a server that is started now you shut it down in an hour so if it was in the current day then you need to calculate from the start time to the end time but if it was started yesterday and you delete it today then you need to report it at midnight and then go from midnight to whenever they deleted it and there's a lot of like moving parts in there and stuff and Mm -hmm. if you try to do this on hours it's much easier to do in seconds but if you try to do it in hours Get rounding issues. Yeah, so, I was say you get the rounding issues and coming into play. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. And then what we discovered in Stripe is there's no way. So you send up these usage records. So you create a price and you say, like, it's $10 a month for a server, but the price is actually per second in oh, there. Yeah. And you usage I what it breaks down to. Yeah, but there's a lot of, it's a point oh, and a bunch of zeros and then like a three and a one. <laughs> it is like it's, 10 zeros yeah, and it is, five or something. It is hilarious because it is like, yeah, point zero 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 three one per second or something. And then when you look at my usage page, it like shows you that number times the number of seconds per month, which is like two million some seconds. So it's like very crazy numbers. And then the total is like $5 and 16 cents a use. And you're like, but there's millions. And then there's tiny like fractions of pennies. Yeah, it is a hilarious thing. And it's not, from what I understand, it's just kind of like what you're going to have to do with it. On Stripe, the $10 a month price is kind of fake. That's like estimating that if you use 730 hours, which is like the average hours per month, that's what $10 would be. But like February will be shorter and other months will be longer and whatever. So it's not exact $10 a month every month or whatever, which is fine. Some companies do different little things where they'll like cap $10 a month or something like that. And it's based on maybe 28 days or something. So they're like, Mm -hmm. well, if you paid Mm -hmm. for it for these 28 days and we'll cap it at ten dollars and then if it's yeah, 31 days free or something yeah. yeah and they'll just kind of like adjust to whatever's needed but we wanted to keep track of these like all of these usage records so every time we report we can actually go through that and keep track and make sure that we didn't make any mistakes there and i think the first time we did it we made a mistake and then the mm-hmm. stripe api doesn't allow you to delete those records once you've reported them and you oh, can't that's right i forgot about you that you can't yeah. like pull a specific record you can only get summaries so if you want to fix anything you actually have to like make another api request as if you're adding another record but you say that i want to set that time and we weren't setting the time in the response or whatever so we need to to, like change that and record this timestamp 
in order to go and correct it in the future, if we like went over or under, we can come back and actually make the same API request, which right, was right. kind of, yep. it's a, a tougher implementation than you would think. It's Very much. Because it's kind of like seconds or hourly based, it's tougher than say your convert kit and you sent 100,000 emails this month and we charge you X per 10,000 emails sent or whatever. Those are much easier metered billing thing yeah, but yeah you know it is really common around servers that everything is like second based these days or whatever so i thought that was going to be easier and it definitely turned out to be more challenging than you would expect but we now know and we can like add this into pay and jumpstart pro and stuff as well in case yeah. anybody else wants to use that kind of thing yeah but, yeah which would be cool i think it all boils down to dealing with time is hard and it, no matter what you're doing with time, time zones, yeah. <laughs> meter billing time. Yeah, everything with time is really hard. Can you imagine how much like developer efficiency we would have if time was just consistent through every time zone? If we had one time zone and we had like maybe all the months were the exact same number of days or seconds or whatever, if we didn't have leap years. And if it was all easy, mm -hmm. if all those calculations are easy, then like there's probably so much wasted developer effort trying to make times in your applications work right that it would be oh, wild yeah. how much more we could have built. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I know I think I probably tend to get it wrong too. Like I think one thing, like I run into this all the time. I got to think like, okay, wait, am I trying to do, I want to know if like the timestamp on this record is in the future from now. And then I always am like, does that mean I need to do less than or equal to or greater? Oh, yeah. Like I always have to think about it. And I usually get it wrong and I'm like, oh, right, of course. And then I think I got it. And then next time I go to do it, I forget it all again. Yeah. I just did that and you pointed that out in the PR yesterday for one feature we're adding to Jumpstart is if you like update your terms of service or privacy policy and you need to enforce that users like agree to the updated version. We have like a before action that'll stop and say, hey, terms of service has changed. Please accept this before continuing. The logic for that was like, hey, the terms of service have changed on this date. And it was like backwards. And mm -hmm. then that's, I think, where I put the not because it was like greater than or equal. Uh, and it was yeah, supposed yeah, to be yeah, opposite. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I'll flip it and put a not here and then test that works. And then somewhere in there, I had two checks for the time and they were the opposite checks. And it put me into an infinite loop because one of them was like, hey, you haven't agreed to this yet. And then the next one was like, hey, you already agreed to this. We'll redirect back to the homepage, which would then say, hey, you haven't agreed to that. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it goes back and forth between them <laughs> infinitely. And I was right. like, oh my God. So yes, I have the That's exact same. Thing. Yeah. Pretty much have to stop for 10 seconds or whatever and be like, okay, here's this date. Here's this date on it and visualize a timeline and then put yep, a greater than too. symbol in the middle. And then I'm like, yep. okay, if it's not this, then whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do that too. Yeah. Reading through that PR was interesting. That little suggestion about, so I, much like you, I don't typically use unless in Ruby. I prefer to say if, but in that yeah. PR, I had made a suggestion for anyone. So people out there listening can understand this. I had made a suggestion because it was like you were saying if and then bang some condition. It was if not 
agreement accepted by current user, which right. is how it read, which right. yep. was a quick fix for me because of that mistake I made in the accepted by right. thing. It used to actually read if accepted by a current user, but that was the condition for actually like showing that they needed to agree to it to the new version. Yeah. So I was like, oh yeah. And I quickly made that change and then just threw a knot in there and I was like, oh great, it works. Right. And that's where we got to and you were like, yeah, we should do unless here. To me, if I felt like it read better using unless there, but I like what you ended up coming back with and doing, which is just renaming the method to work and read better with the if statement. Because again, I hardly ever use unless because I think similar to you, I have to really think about what that means there. And in a lot of cases, sometimes it's easy enough but I find most of the time I yeah. have to really like be careful when I read this. I um really like unless if it's not the first thing, if it's a chain where it's like do this unless this yeah, feels yeah. really intuitive to me there. But when it's the first, which is like modifier form, right? You put it at yeah. the end of the a statement. Yeah, when it's at the beginning, for some reason, it always it's catches weird. me, and I always have to rewrite it in my head as if not this then do this block. So yeah, what we ended up doing was we said, we already have agreement accepted by question mark user. And then it was like, well, let's just have it not accepted by helper. So then we could have Mm -hmm. the same thing, but it reads better. And now we also have both versions of the method. So depending on what you're doing, you can say, hey, if the user agreed to this, then we can do whatever. And if they didn't agree to this, then... We also have that. So you almost alias that method, but you just do the alias, the inverse of that method. And then you have the ability to kind of just always write an if statement instead of unless. And you could still always use unless, but I always found it more easy to read when, and just in general, like having the positive and the negative method names for me is Mm -hmm. helpful, just Mm -hmm. depending on the context of what I'm doing. But It is kind of weird though, like thinking about that in pay, I don't have, I don't believe we have like on a subscription in that case, I wouldn't have like a canceled method and a not canceled method in that case. And maybe this is more because it subscription has a state. Those we actually say like if the subscription's active or if it's canceled and canceled also is a more complex concept there as well. So like you can have a subscription that you've canceled, but it is still active because it's on the grace period. Like you paid for one month of Premiere Pro or Photoshop 15th or something. Yeah. And you canceled in the middle. You still are active for the last 15 days, but technically it's canceled and you shouldn't be able to cancel Uh it twice. We want the UI to be able to tell you that. So the states get a little tricky because when you build out the billing page, it's like, if it's active, yes, but is it active and on its grace period? And you have to do like, if it's active, that means that it could be, and really you don't want to use active there in general because you, you want to be more specific about it. You want to see if, is it on its trial? Is it on its grace period? Is it completely canceled? Is it whatever? Paused. Standard active. Yeah. Is it paused? And then when you're in your actual application, you just use active because you are saying, hey, does this user have access to the pro episode on GoRails? 
I don't care if they're in their trial, if they've canceled and they're in their grace period, or they're just regularly subscribed. None of that matters. We just ask if it's active or not. And we say yes. And Mm -hmm. it's a way to like keep an abstraction around all these nuances about the weird states a subscription could be in. In this context, it only matters that they are in any of them. Whereas on the billing page, you really want to say, if you're on a trial, then your trial ends on this date, or if your trial's expired and yada, yada. So it's one that you wouldn't expect to be as complicated as it is, but that just reminded me of that or whatever. Like A lot of times I'll have that negative version of a method. But in that case, it's like, I don't know what value you'd get out of not canceled. Probably not much. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fascinating. Like for me, because before this is my last job, it was just a single Rails app I worked on. So it's really such a shift working with you and the things that we work on because we are not just building our own thing for our own customers. I mean, I guess in a way we are, but not really. Like we have to build things but for everybody. But they're very abstract. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a big shift, but it's been a fun shift. But yeah, like these are the kind of things that we are like talking about all the time. It's just so much different from my last experience in my last job in a great way. Yeah, I am in the same boat of like when I worked for just product companies like SaaS companies and stuff. That's what you did. You built the features for your customers, but we have a meta job at GoRails where it's like, thinking about how to make life easier for developers and not actually Mm -hmm. just building the Mm -hmm. specific features. So it's a whole different ballgame, which is nice. I really enjoy that. It's a way to do open source and get paid for it. And also like just kind of R&D style work that if you work for a SaaS company and they're like, hey, we need this feature by yesterday is more of the case, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, totally. And it's like a button you got to add to some page for one user because they've got some enterprise contract or whatever. And you got to go mm-hmm. do this one-off thing for whatever mm-hmm. little thing. And those are fine, but they're not necessarily as creative, which we get to be yeah. a little bit more, I think. Absolutely. That's one of the many things I've enjoyed about coming on board here is just the sheer like creative process and thinking through these problems and especially with anyone opening a PR against something, we have to be careful about what we merge in there because there's consequences that don't just affect us or them, like that person opening the PR, right? There's a lot of other people to consider and what we pull in the code here. Yeah, that's the mind-blowing thing about what Raphael does for Rails. Being able Mm. to look at a PR across something that's that big and that generic is unbelievable. So yeah, yeah, we have a tiny fraction of that and it is hard enough as it is, but I can't believe how much he can keep in his head on those. It's wild. Thanks, Raphael. Yes. Huge thank you. That's a really good one. Like we did our pair programming session last Friday on simple calendar changes and that, oh, was, that was a blast. That was really fun. But it also ran into a lot of those things of like okay, you're building a generic calendar gem. How do you make this as flexible for as many use cases as possible? Mm. There's a lot of nuances to the decisions you make when you're doing that stuff. And that it brought me back on just like, yeah, the calendar means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Let's take Google Calendar, for example. That one registers every event inside of the box for the day, which is Mm -hmm. good. 
But then all of a sudden you realize that's just the month view because they have a week view and they have like agenda, like three or four day view. If you open up Basecamp, they've got two calendars next to each other and the events actually are underneath it and those change. Mm -hmm. And we're talking a little bit about like, it'd be nice to show a simple example using turbo frames to make the calendar update with a sort of Ajaxy style without refreshing the whole page. And on one hand, you could just like slap a turbo frame around the output of the month calendar or whatever, and that'd be fine. But if the user ever wants to include those events in a list underneath the calendar, like Basecamp style, that turbo frame shouldn't be done by the gem. It should actually be done outside of the gem. And then it's like, well, maybe that should just be always outside of the gem. Like we want to make it work nicely with turbo frames, but does that... An older Rails version. Yeah, yeah. We got to make sure it works without. You know, do we need to even add any features to Simple Calendar to support that or not? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Yeah, which I think we had talked about just one option just being like, maybe we just provide an example in the documentation of what, how to use a tur- like turbo with simple calendar if you wanted to. And maybe that was yep. the solution. Yeah. Cause there may be certain use cases where you need to edit the links to have a data turbo frame on it or something. And that goes and changes something else maybe, but it's like, it's interesting cause there's a lot of little nuances to it. One of the other things we talked about during that was events. So If you're displaying a month calendar, you have a couple options on how to query for events. So you can say it's October 7th and we're going to display October for all of those events. So we'll query the database for any events. And this is where it gets tricky too. If you have start and end times, you would want to catch any events that end in October and start before or during October. And then you also want any events that start in October or before October and end in October or after, because it could be an event that goes goes, for the whole year. So it needs to span October. There are some that will be start and end before October and you can ignore those. But if they start before and end in or after include those and Mm -hmm. vice versa for starting in or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's insane. It's a lot of things, but yeah, see, just right there. It's just like... It's a brain teaser. That's an interesting thing because you want to do that efficiently. And then there's a couple things to worry about too of, do you want to even show any of the items in... So you have a month calendar, right? So let me pull up the calendar so I can see this and explain what I'm thinking. But if we go to the month view, October 1st, 2022 is a Saturday. So your month calendar needs to render one day on the first week of the month, because that is the only day in October. The only day, yep. Mm -hmm. But you need to backfill six days and display those as September. And then you can choose if you would like to display those calendar events there as well. You might only want to display October dates, but like Google Calendar will do this where everything on the calendar that has a day is actually going to display the events, which probably makes sense. But they'll like gray out the older ones or change the opacity on them or something, things in the past. Right. Yep. And like you can choose to do all kinds of different things like that. And you've got to build this open source gem that you're like, when you build it initially, you're like, the only thing that I care about is do I render 
a table with four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, however many rows. And Uh then the day is in there and like, that's about it. But you quickly find out that there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Yeah. And then also like styling the calendar too. I know there's some default styles that ship with it, but then like, that's a whole nother piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Because all the asset stuff has changed a lot. The way that that works now is it's just in the asset pipeline, like the old style. And honestly, I just say copy paste these and use them in Uh your own. Here's all the selectors. Go fill them out yourself and whatever. We mostly have default styles in the sense that like, I think it was bootstrap two when I originally like made simple calendar and it was like the calendar just slap a table and a table zebra or whatever, the sort of alternating Uh colors and whatever for rows. And you could do like very basic styling that the table layout for it would be good enough. And you might set a minimum height or whatever for the days themselves. So they weren't too squished, but yeah, I think that's what I ended up doing. I played with it recently. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's like, we can't dictate this because we don't know if you're using bootstrap or tailwind or whatever. And we could do inline styles or whatever, but you're going to customize it guaranteed. So Uh, (laughs) why put too much effort into it? We just really want to make it easy for you to like, here's all the options for selecting dates in the past, dates in the future, the current day, previous month, next month, those selectors make it easy for you to choose what is opacity lower or whatever. And right. Yeah. The main goal is more so giving you a functional calendar with ease than worrying about style. Yeah. I get it. Makes sense. Yeah, and giving you the tools to go style it pretty right. easily yep. yourself. Yeah. But I think there might still be an open issue that's if you click on a month calendar, you click next month or previous month, you have a date in the URL. And if you don't, it just uses date.today, of course. But if you do have one in the URL, we'll use that month to display whatever month you selected. And then that one's simple. So if you want to have the next and previous links, you just say, what's the end of the month plus one day? And that's the mm-hmm. beginning of mm-hmm. the next month and vice versa for previous. Well, I think one of the issues that was opened was like, hey, if I have a three or four day calendar, if you do that same calculation, that doesn't make sense because you end up shifting the calendar only by a single day. When you actually right. want to jump it three days or four days. Whatever or you're rendering out there, yeah. That one's trickier mm-hmm. because you would be somewhere in that day range and then you would want to, you know, you couldn't go to the end and just do that. Well, you could actually, that's probably what you would need to do is go to the end and add Um, X number of days. It's also Um, kind of tricky though too, if like it's like the last, like say you're showing the last four days of the month and or something where it bridges the gap between a few days in the current month and a few days in the next month. Yeah, and, and that one we actually don't do multiple rows. We always just do one row. So one row, that, okay, yeah. So that it's even. But that's a nuance, though, that is important to note. That's like, if you're doing a month calendar, you always have the full month in view. But if you're only doing four days, whatever date you give us, is that like the middle or is it the beginning or is uh-huh. it the end? And it's probably the beginning because then we can show you the most days in the future. But you could probably pass in a previous day that would be the beginning that would show that 
And you would never have like a full page almost like in a book where you're like, right. here's a conclusive turn of the view where this one's kind of almost a sliding view that you can always fine tune mm-hmm. as, as much as you would mm-hmm. want. Whatever that initial day it kind of dictates the pages, but that initial day right. yesterday would show four days and then today it would just shift over by one when you uh-huh. refresh the page. But uh-huh. clicking the pages across is going to be a little shifty. And it's like, yeah, just yeah. a nuance to that kind mm-hmm. of calculation. But when you look at it on the surface, it seems like a super simple problem. <laughs> and then yeah. you look at it and start building it and you're like, oh gosh, there's more nuance here than I realized. What's the best way to solve those? You take your best guess or what's going to work best for most mm-hmm. people and mm-hmm. try to do that. But yeah, it's kind of strange. Yeah. It's like our checkerboard thing that we wanted for the hackathon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were going to make a... We didn't end up doing much of it, but we were going to try and build a real-time checkers game for the Rails hackathon using Hotwire. I think originally we wanted to do chess, but then it's like, wait a second. Yeah, Piece, yeah. Pieces can move all kind of crazy ways <laughs> and combinations. No. And then we spent a few minutes like... You look at a checkerboard and you're like, oh, they're all alternating. If you look down or across, it's always red, black, red, black. And same down is red, black, mm-hmm. red, black. And you are like, okay, cool. So I need eight columns, eight rows or whatever. Maybe it's 10. I don't remember. It should be simple enough. We'll just go do that. And we'll use the cycle helper in the Rails views, which can uh-huh. alternate between red and black. And... We do that and we realize like every end of the row is an exception because it needs to duplicate that color as the beginning of the next row. So it actually alternates. And we're like... Instead, we ended up with strips of red, (laughs) strips of black, strips of red, strips of black. Racing stripes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. uh, A checkerboard pattern. And even little things like that where you're like, oh, this is going to be really simple. And you're like, dang it. It's close. But every time we finish a row, now we have to have this weird little jump a step, burn an Mm. extra cycle or reset Mm. one cycle back or something. And it's like, we don't need to use that to output anything, but we need to do this weird little nuance thing at the end. And I think those are good challenges though, because it makes you start to realize like, there's a lot more thought that goes into every little thing than you realize. Everything somebody builds has a lot of decisions that were made. Lots of trade-offs. Maybe we would have been better off doing a real-time tic-tac-toe. That's like the next step below, right? That's just the pieces. We didn't need to worry about cycling colors in squares. It's a good point. It always reminds me too, though, like people make video games that look unbelievably realistic. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. And we're sitting there like, oh, I thought we'd be able to make a checkerboard in 30 seconds. And it's actually like (laughs) takes a little thinking. Yeah. Oh, no figure. <laughs> it's always a realization or gut check when you're like, man, this really simple thing is actually a lot more complicated than to do it well is a lot more complicated because you could always hard code the divs and uh-huh. something like that or whatever. Sure. But <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. No, it is not. We should still finish that. That would be a good little screencast series. Go build the. Real time checkers game and because type fighters and stuff was a blast mm, to watch and play. And yeah. Yeah. A lot of what Hotwire is used for, I think, is not 
the sort of two users interacting with the same thing at the same time. It's a mm-hmm. lot of like, here, somebody just took, did this activity and we're going to add it to your list of recent deploys or something. And those are like fine, but they're just doing minor changes. It's not like real time edits together with somebody else. Mm. It'd be a good one to like show a little example on that or whatever. Something with potential race conditions and things. Ooh, yeah. I had a West type fighter, even though you totally smoked me every time we played. (laughs) I used to, um, in grade school, play some Mavis Beacon game where it's like you're in a car and you're typing and the faster you go, like are you racing against your drag racing? They like get smaller in the rear view mirror and stuff. Nice. And then in high school we had like a keyboarding class or whatever. And so I've been typing for years and years of this class and I'm like, all this homework I can get done in five minutes. Like, why am I here? <laughs> yeah, right. I think I had one keyboarding class in maybe like fifth, sixth grade, something like that, that I did for a semester. And that mm-hmm. was pretty much it up until, let's see, I guess maybe I was, let's just say I was like 12 then. So up until about 20 years later, 23 years later, my typing was like this, like finger by finger kind of <laughs> thing. And then once I started learning like programming, I was like, okay, I got to work on my typing here. So I've gotten a lot better in the last two and a half, three years. That's so funny. You probably are a totally different person now. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't remember. I haven't done any like words per minute tests for a long time, but Last I remember, like a long time ago, it was like 95 or something like that. Not super fast, but fast enough that Not it was pretty fast. Good. 95? That's so, fast. Some people are insane, though. That is fast, but some people yeah, are just amazing. That's to me. At my last job, the product manager, Tom, him and I had a thing going for a little while. Like He was trying to bet me that I couldn't beat his words per minute score. So I was like training for a little while there. I think he was around like 80, 85, somewhere like that. I think I consistently hovered around like 42, maybe something like that. But if you got the Vim commands then you could go faster, right? Oh man, watch out. Yeah. If we were deleting words in Vim, watch out. I can guess you. Yeah. Backspace. He's just sitting there slamming backspace Uh, backspace. and you're like, that's right. Three keys and you're done. That's it. Yep, 5DD, done, old paragraph, going or something. (laughs) That is a hilarious thing that like learning Vim just feels like you've went from 80 words per minute to 20 or something and it just is like, oh yeah, grinds your bones. 80 80 to 2, yeah. Yeah, you're like, I just can't live like this. Like it is so frustrating internally when you're like, the thoughts are in my head and I'm losing them because I'm trying to type fast enough and keep like doing what I'm doing, but it's holding me back. And yeah, that was not rough, fun. It's a rough learning curve. I think I struggled for like hard, struggled for probably like the first two, three weeks. And then like, it's just gotten easier. And like now like, there's just so much, I don't even think about yeah, it. Yeah. You're teaching you know? me stuff now. So no, like, <laughs> it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Although I see you catching yourself every now and then when you realize you're tapping it yeah. a few times. That's the key there. Yeah, I think I'm trying. You I'm trying. That's really the hard part is like, if you get in those habits, then you have to slow yourself down and like, oh, I did something wrong. Let me stop, do it the way I should have done it. And the faster way, even though it's slower today, you got to mm-hmm. rebuild those habits. That's mm-hmm. hard. It's hard. That's what I did, like learning to like the newer, more efficient ways to do things I used to do in Vim. 
I'll try and do it my old way and then I'll like catch myself and I'm like, no, I'll undo it all the way back to where it was and then go do it the right way to try and like really like get the muscle memory in there for those things. But just being able to do something like CT underscore and like being able to surgically remove and replace a section in a string or something. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. It makes so much sense. Like we talked about the other day, your ability as a programmer, you'll be a better programmer if you're not a slow typer because, and if you know Vim well and stuff, because the thoughts in your head can get into the computer faster that way. Mm -hmm. That's the reason you learn to touch type and you learn Vim commands. That is no longer slowing you down. It's your brain can think a thought on how to solve something and you can put it in the computer and try it before you get distracted with like, how do I highlight this and do a multi-line delete? Never. Um, you forgot what you started out to do in the first place. So that's how you get that figured out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing you see on all the good developers. They can think something and then voila, it's right there and they're testing it out. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, they never go in between those two steps. It's just one fluid movement, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Yep. Well, I am going to hop back into some caddy configuration JSON nested hell and see if I can Sweet. get that figured out. So if you have a single page app, I guess, because sometimes those are deployed as index.html and you have your JavaScript there, you Mm -hmm. want your web server to take all of the URLs and then route them to index, whatever's in Uh, book index. Yeah, it's been so long since I I learned React in my bootcamp, right? And I remember like trying to set up like all that React router stuff and everything. I don't remember the look of it now, but as you're saying these things, like some of it's coming back to me. Yeah, if anything, I'll use Jekyll or Bridgetown or whatever at most. And it's like never SPAs and hardly any static sites and stuff. So like my knowledge of these things is very limited. Or if I'm using React or Vue, like it's in a Rails app. So like that stuff is already set up for me or whatever. So yeah, I was poking at that and just trying to figure out like, how do we make that configurable? And maybe there's just a few settings or example things or something that we can compose the caddy configuration with or something. It's like a 10 or 15 nested JSON objects and all kinds of crazy stuff. And like, for the most part, there's like one array of handlers. And that is like, go check the file system for the file, go check the reverse proxy. If you don't find that, then we'll like display an error or whatever the case is. So like if we were to enable that SPA, thing on a static site, it works fine with your Rails app because you don't have a public index HTML file. But if you do have a Jekyll site or a Bridgetown site or a static site, there is a index HTML. So any invalid URLs that weren't found on the file system would just render your homepage again, which is like mm-hmm. not what you want mm-hmm. unless you're building your SPA and it can actually look at the URL client side and analyze that and all your JavaScripts there. Yeah. So that's a common case. And it's like, maybe that's just a checkbox and we like insert that dynamically. I don't know what we'll end up doing with it, but we can make that, but then it's hard coded to exactly that. And maybe you need to customize some other things in addition to that. Maybe you should share real quickly why you're doing this stuff. Cause I don't know, maybe you said that and Mm. I just missed it, but I don't know if the listeners out there, so that they understand why you're doing this. So the idea is really like, we want to be able to support 
more stuff than just like your standard Rails app. So you might have two repos. One is a React app that's a static file, basically, with some JavaScript for your front end. And then your back end is a separate app that's like a Rails API. We want to be able to support all that and have that. I've tested like you can deploy Jekyll, we can deploy Node apps. We're using ASDF for version management. So now you can install Python, PHP, like all kinds of things, which is cool. So like the new Hatchbox. Hatchbox, yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's all for the new Hatchbox version two that we just launched and like lots of awesome stuff there. And I haven't really tested out anything more than Rails. So it's all possible. But now I'm trying to like make it simple to use or whatever. You saved that screenshot since you have the updated slogan for Hatchbox, right? For when you get we get all this ironed out. Oh, As I you know, right now, it just, was, yeah. right now it just says Rails so oh, yeah. simple, right? Yeah. I sent Chris a nice little screenshot where I just kind of MS painted in like all the other things <laughs> that, that we get, it could now potentially support in the future. Yeah, it was like Rails and then hand-drawn plus Python and Node yeah. and whatever. Yeah. It was beautiful. Well, with like MS Paint quality, just like you would have done back uh-huh. in the 90s for those around back then. Yeah, it is definitely up to par quality wise. Like it is, you could be our new designer. I think you've heard it. Titles. Thanks. <laughs> That's the uh, rabbit hole I'm going down now. And it's hard because there's just not a lot of good examples for some of that. It's all the examples are in the caddy file format, which might remind you of like an Nginx config file. But if you want to use the API, it's all JSON. So you can adapt the caddy files to JSON. So what I'm doing is like, here's an example caddy file. Look at what the JSON it generates, and then we can go pull out the snippets uh, we need right. and put them in there. Yep. But it does make for a painful thing where in the caddy file examples, you could go and have like a domains variable and inject that in when you like write the file to disk and like pull the domains that are in the app and put it in there. But are we going to have people like writing this? JSON and merging that in and like they're going to make mistakes in that crazy Mm -hmm. JSON. Mm -hmm. So I was like, how will we do this? I'm not sure the best answer there yet. It'll be something that will be customizable and stuff. And maybe it's just in general, you won't have to fiddle with it. So like, it'll be fine. But if you're deploying an SPA, we want that to be easy. And I don't think there's ever going to be like a Way for us just to detect if you have an SPA and we can just like do that because even Heroku can't really do it. They have their own Nginx build pack that you can add that will do it for you because their router is just gives it straight to whatever service is listening to that port and you're done. We will have that layer in between that you can do all kinds of cool stuff with. But how do you make a JSON thing Editable safely. That's the magic trick. Right. Yeah, I don't know. And it could be something cool of like, uh, we build out some validator that knows how to validate the subset of, because we'll probably just let you edit the like handlers, which are the file server, the reverse proxy and whatever. And maybe we'll end up with a, you give us an array of things, we'll validate the array and make sure that you have the right keys in there and we could have our own config validator class and that could be kind of cool, mm. do the trick. And then we could just give you the full JSON and you say you either use what we generate by default or you can use everything custom or maybe mix and match where you could just inject 
Because we could do like percent curly brace file server uh, right, right. and uh, just replace that with our file server directive or something. And then right. that way you could use all of the features we auto generate for you, plus put your own in some place where you, mm-hmm. wherever you like it. So we'll That'd see. Cool. Yeah. I think that could be a really good option. Unfortunately, people will just have to learn some crazy JSON syntax of Caddy, but it's not too bad. They can write it out in the Caddy file and run the Caddy adapt to spit yeah, out the JSON yeah. and copy-paste yeah. it in. So that's much easier. So I'm going to go try and finish that up before the week is over. I will not be publishing that to production yet. But <laughs> yeah. Wait till next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. I'm going to go get back to dealing with some webhooks and then... I have to take the kiddo to dance class here later on in the season. Yeah. Afternoon, so do you ever have to dance along with? No, never. Haven't had to do that yet. They're doing a contemporary dance right now. So ah. I think they're just off on their own, doing their own thing. So no well, daddy daughter dancing yet. Except for at the house. We do it. We do it at the house. I get roped into it here a lot. There you go. That's good. You'll have to leak one of these dance parties sometime yeah i'll I'll spin my webcam around one day and live stream it there you go (laughs) i love it well that was good catching up like we do on a regular basis but it was kind of fun fun. to do this yeah that was a good time thanks for asking me to hop on and fill in i'm gonna go ahead and take andrew's spot now so he's out of here i hate to inform you andrew but you're gone yeah he's he's out the conference that's it (laughs) i'm in you're out go update the website you're in that's we'll just funny. put your photo and still use his name. There you go. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> All right. I guess we will wrap it up there and talk to everybody next week. Yep. Sounds good, man. Thanks again. See you later. Bye.